Chapter 12 The Foolish and the Weak Meg could see nothing, but she felt her heart pounding with hope. With one accord, all the beasts rose to their feet, turned toward one of the arched openings, and bowed their heads and tentacles in greeting. Mrs. Watson appeared, standing between two columns. Beside her came Mrs. Who, behind them a quivering of light. The three of them were somehow not quite the same as they had been when Meg had first seen them. Their outlines seemed blurred. Colors ran together as in a wet watercolor painting. But they were there. They were recognizable. They were themselves. Meg pulled herself away from that beast, jumped to the floor, and rushed at Mrs. Watsit. But Mrs. Watsit held up a warning hand, and Meg realized that she was not completely materialized, that she was light and not substance, and embracing her now would have been like trying to hug a sunbeam. We had to hurry, so there wasn't quite time. You wanted us? Mrs. Watsit asked. The tallest of the beasts bowed again and took a step away from the table and towards Mrs. Watsit. It is a question of the little boy. Father left him, Meg cried. He left him on camisots. Appallingly, Mrs. Watsit's voice was cold. And what do you expect us to do? Meg pressed her knuckles against her teeth so that her braces cut her skin. Then she flung out her arms pleadingly. But it's Charles Wallace. It has him, Mrs. Watsit. Save him, please save him. You know that we can do nothing on Kamazots, Mrs. Watsit said, her voice still cold. You mean you let Charles be caught by it forever? Meg's voice rose shrilly. Did I say that? But we can't do anything, you know we can't. We tried, Mrs. Watsit, you have to save him. Meg, this is not our way, Mrs. Watsit said sadly. I thought you would know that this is not our way. Mr. Murray took a step forward and bowed, and to Meg's amazement, the three ladies bowed back to him. I don't believe we've been introduced, Mrs. Watsit said. It's father, you know it's father, Meg's angry impatience grew. Father, Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch. I'm very glad to, Mr. Murray mumbled, then went on. Oh, I'm sorry, my glasses are broken and I can't see you very well. It's not necessary to see us, Mrs. Watsit said. If you could teach me enough more about the Tesseract so that I could get back to Camazots. What then? came Mrs. Witch's surprising voice. I will try to take my child away from it. And you know that you will not succeed? There's nothing left except to try. Mrs. Watsit spoke gently. I'm sorry, we cannot allow you to go. Then let me, Calvin suggested. I almost got him away before. Mrs. Watsit shook her head. No, Calvin, Charles has gone even deeper into it. 
You will not be permitted to throw yourself in with him. For that, you must realize, is what would happen. There was a long silence. All the soft rays filtering into the great hall seemed to concentrate on Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and the faint light that must be Mrs. Witch. No one spoke. One of the beasts moved a tendril slowly back and forth across the stone tabletop. At last, Meg could stand it no longer, and she cried out despairingly. Then what are you going to do? Are you just going to throw Charles away? Mrs. Witch's voice rolled formidably across the hall. Silence, child. But Meg could not be silent. She pressed closely against Aunt Beast, but Aunt Beast did not put the protecting tentacles around her. I can't go, Meg cried. I can't, you know I can't. Did anybody ask you to? The grim voice made Meg's skin prickle into goose flesh. She burst into tears. She started beating at Aunt Beast like a small child having a tantrum. Her tears rained down her face and spattered Aunt Beast's fur. Aunt Beast stood quietly against the assault. All right, I'll go, Meg sobbed. I know you want me to go. We want nothing from you that you do without grace, Mrs. Watts had said, or that you do without understanding. Meg's tears stopped as abruptly as they had started. But I do understand. She felt tired and unexpectedly peaceful. Now, the coldness that under Aunt Beast's ministrations had left her body had also left her mind. She looked toward her father, and her confused anger was gone, and she felt only love and pride. She smiled at him, asking forgiveness, and then pressed up against Aunt Beast. This time... Aunt Beast's arm went around her. Mrs. Witch's voice was grave. What do you understand? That it has to be me. It can't be anyone else. I don't understand Charles, but he understands me. I'm the one who's closest to him. Father's been away for so long since Charles Wallace was a baby. They don't know each other. And Calvin's only known Charles for such a little time. If it had been longer, then he would have been the one. But, oh, I see. I see. I understand. It has to be me. There isn't anyone else. Mr. Murray, who had been sitting, his elbows on his knees, his chin on his fists, rose. I will not allow it. Why? Mrs. Witch demanded. Look, I don't know what or who you are, and at this point I don't care. I will not allow my daughter to go alone into this danger. Why? You know what the outcome will probably be, and she's weak now, weaker than she was before. She was almost killed by the black thing. I fail to understand how you can even consider such a thing. Calvin jumped down. Maybe it's right about you, or maybe you're in league with it. I'm the one to go if anybody goes. Why did you bring me along at all to take care of Meg? You said so yourself. But you have done that, 
Mrs. Watson assured him. I haven't done anything, Calvin shouted. You can't send Meg. I won't allow it. I'll put my foot down. I won't permit it. Don't you see that you're making something that is already hard for Meg even harder? Mrs. Watson asked him. Aunt Beast turned tentacles toward Mrs. Watson. Is she strong enough to test her again? You know what she has been through. If witch takes her, she can manage, Mrs. Watson said. If it will help, I could go too and hold her. Aunt Beast's arm around Meg tightened. Oh, Aunt Beast, Meg started, but Mrs. Watson cut her off. No. I was afraid not, Aunt Beast said humbly. I just wanted you to know that I would. Mrs. Uh, what's it? Mr. Murray frowned and pushed his hair back from his face. Then he shoved with his middle finger at his nose as though he were trying to get spectacles closer to his eyes. Are you remembering that she is only a child? And she's backward, Calvin bellowed. I resent that, Meg said hotly, hoping that indignation would control her trembling. I'm better than you at math, and you know it. Do you have the courage to go alone? Mrs. Watson asked her. Meg's voice was flat. No, but it doesn't matter. She turned to her father and Calvin. You know it's the only thing to do. You know they'd never send me alone if... How do we know they're not in league with it? Mr. Murray demanded. Father! No, Meg, Mrs. Watson said. I do not blame your father for being angry and suspicious and frightened, and I cannot pretend that we are doing anything but sending you into the gravest kind of danger. I have to acknowledge quite openly that it may be a fatal danger. I know this, but I do not believe it. And the happy medium doesn't believe it either. Can't she see what's going to happen? Calvin asked. Oh, not in this kind of thing, Mrs. Watson sounded surprised at his question. If we knew ahead of time what was going to happen, we'd be, we'd be like the people on Camazots, with no lives of our own, with everything all planned and done for us. How can I explain it to you? Oh, I know. In your language, you have a form of poetry called the sonnet. Yes, yes, Calvin said impatiently. What's that got to do with a happy medium? Kindly pay me the courtesy of listening to me. Mrs. Watson's voice was stern, and for a moment Calvin stopped pawing the ground like a nervous colt. It is a very strict form of poetry, is it not? Yes. There are 14 lines, I believe, all in iambic pentameter. That's a very strict rhythm or meter, yes? Yes, Calvin nodded. And each line has to end with a rigid rhyme pattern. And if the poet does not do it exactly this way, it is not a sonnet, is it? No. But within this strict form, the poet has complete freedom to say whatever he wants, doesn't he? Yes, Calvin nodded again. So, Mrs. Watson said. So what? Oh, do not be stupid, boy, Mrs. Watson scolded. You know perfectly well what I'm driving at. 
You mean you're comparing our lives to a sonnet? A strict form, but freedom within it? Yes, Mrs. Watson said. You're given the form, but you have to write the sonnet yourself. What you say is completely up to you. Please, Meg said, please. If I've got to go, I want to go and get it over with. Each minute you put it off makes it harder. She is right, boomed Mrs. Witch's voice. It is time. You may say goodbye. Mrs. Watson was giving her not permission, but a command. Meg curtsied clumsily to the beasts. Thank you all very much. I know you saved my life. She did not add what she could not help thinking. Saved it for what? So that it could get me? She put her arms around Aunt Beast, pressed up against the soft, fragrant fur. Thank you, she whispered. I love you. And I, you little one. Aunt Beast pressed gentle tendrils against Meg's face. Cal, Meg said, holding out her hand. Calvin came to her and took her hand, then drew her roughly to him and kissed her. He didn't say anything, and he turned away before he had a chance to see the surprised happiness that brightened Meg's eyes. At last, she turned to her father. I'm, I'm sorry, father. He took both her hands and his, bent down to her with his short-sighted eyes. Sorry for what, Megatron? Tears almost came to her eyes at the gentle use of the old nickname. I wanted you to do it all for me. I wanted everything to be all easy and simple. So I tried to pretend that it was all your fault. Because I was scared. And I didn't want to have to do anything myself. But I wanted to do it for you, Mr. Murray said. That's what every parent wants. He looked into her dark, frightened eyes. I won't let you go, Meg. I am going. No. Mrs. Watsit's voice was sterner than Meg had ever heard it. You are going to allow Meg the privilege of accepting this danger. You are a wise man, Mr. Murray. You are going to let her go. Mr. Murray sighed. He drew Meg close to him. Little Megaparsec, don't be afraid to be afraid. We will try to have courage for you. That is all we can do. Your mother... Mother was always shoving me out in the world, Meg said. She'd want me to do this. You know she would. Tell her... She started, choked, then held up her head and said, No, never mind. I'll tell her myself. Good girl, of course you will. Now, Meg walked slowly around the great table to where Mrs. Watsit was still poised between the columns. Are you going with me? No, only Mrs. Witch. The black thing? Fear made her voice tremble. When father tessered me through it, it almost got me. Your father is singularly inexperienced, Mrs. Watsit said. Though a fine man and worth teaching, 
At the moment, he still treats Tessering as though he were working with a machine. We will not let the black thing get you. Think. This was not exactly comforting. The momentary vision and faith that had come to make dwindled. But suppose I can't get Charles Wallace away from it. Stop! Mrs. Watson held up her hand. We gave you gifts the last time we took you to Camazot's. We will not let you go empty-handed this time. But what we can give you now is nothing you can touch with your hands. I give you my love, Meg. Never forget that. My love, always. Mrs. Who, eyes shining behind spectacles, beamed at Meg. Meg felt in her blazer pocket and handed back the spectacles she had used on Camazot's. Your father is right. Mrs. Who took the spectacles and hid them somewhere in the folds of her robes. The virtue is gone from them. And what I have to give you this time, you must try to understand, not word by word, but in a flash, as you understand the Tesseract. Listen, Meg, listen well. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. She paused, and then she said, May the right prevail. Her spectacles seemed to flicker. Behind her, through her, one of the columns became visible. There was a final gleam from the glasses, and she was gone. Meg looked nervously to where Mrs. Watson had been standing before Mrs. Who spoke, but Mrs. Watson was no longer there. No, Mr. Murray cried and stepped toward Meg. Mrs. Witch's voice came through her shimmer. I cannot hold your hand, child. Immediately, Meg was swept into darkness, into nothingness, and then into the icy, devouring cold of the black thing. Mrs. Witch won't let it get me, she thought over and over, while the cold of the black thing seemed to crunch at her bones. Then they were through it, and she was standing breathlessly on her feet, on the same hill on which they had first landed on Camasots. She was cold and a little numb, but no worse than she had often been in the winter in the country, when she had spent an afternoon skating on the pond. She looked around. She was completely alone. Her heart began to pound. Then, seeming to echo from all around her, came Mrs. Witch's unforgettable voice. I have not given you my gift. 
You have something that it has not. This something is your only weapon. But you must find it for yourself. Then the voice ceased, and Meg knew that she was alone. She walked slowly down the hill, her heart thumping painfully against her ribs. There below her was the same row of identical houses they had seen before, and beyond these the linear buildings of the city. She walked along the quiet street. It was dark, and the street was deserted. No children playing ball or skipping rope. No mother figures at the doors. No father figures returning from work. In the same window of each house was a light. And as Meg walked down the street, all the lights were extinguished simultaneously. Was it because of her presence? Or was it simply that it was time for lights out? She felt numb, beyond rage or disappointment or even fear. She put one foot ahead of the other with precise regularity, not allowing her pace to lag. She was not thinking. She was not planning. She was simply walking slowly but steadily toward the city and the domed building where it lay. Now she approached the outlying buildings of the city, and each of them was a vertical line of light, but it was a dim, eerie light, not the warm light of stairways and cities at home. And there were no isolated, brightly lit windows where someone was working late or an office was being cleaned. Out of each building came one man, perhaps a watchman, and each man started walking the width of the building. They appeared not to see her. At any rate, they paid no attention to her whatsoever, and she went on past them. What have I got that it hasn't got, she thought suddenly. What have I possibly got? Now, she was walking by the tallest of the business buildings. More dim vertical lines of light. The walls glowed slightly to give a faint illumination to the streets. Central, central intelligence was ahead of her. Was the man with red eyes still sitting there? Or was he allowed to go to bed? But this was not where she must go, though the man with red eyes seemed the kind old gentleman he claimed to be when compared with it. But he was no longer of any consequence in the search for Charles Wallace. She must go directly to it. It isn't used to being resisted. Father said that's how he managed, and how Calvin and I managed as long as we did. Father saved me then. There's nobody here to save me now. I have to do it myself. I have to resist it by myself. Is that what I have that it hasn't got? No. I'm sure it can resist. It just isn't used to having other people resist. Central, central intelligence blocked with its huge rectangle the end of the square. She turned to walk around it, and almost imperceptibly, her steps slowed. It was not far to the great dome which housed it. 
I'm going to Charles Wallace. That's what's important. That's what I have to think of. I wish I could feel numb again the way I did at first. Suppose it has him somewhere else. Suppose he isn't there. I have to go there first, anyhow. That's the only way I can find out. Her steps got slower and slower as she passed the great bronzed doors, the huge slabs of the central, central intelligence building, as she finally saw ahead of her the strange, light, pulsing dome of it. Father said it was all right for me to be afraid. He said to go ahead and be afraid. And Mrs. Who said, I don't understand what she said. But I think it was meant to make me not hate being only me, and me being the way I am. And Mrs. Watsit said to remember that she loves me. That's what I have to think about. Not about being afraid, or not as smart as it. Mrs. Watsit loves me. That's quite something, to be loved by someone like Mrs. Watsit. She was there. No matter how slowly her feet had taken her at the end. They had taken her there. Directly ahead of her was the circular building, its walls glowing with violet flame, its silvery roof pulsing with a light that seemed to Meg to be insane. Again, she could feel the light, neither warm nor cold, but reaching out to touch her, pulling her toward it. There was a sudden sucking, and she was within. It was as though the wind had been knocked out of her. She gasped for breath, for breath in her own rhythm, not the permeating pulsing of it. She could feel the inexorable beat within her body, controlling her heart, her lungs, but not herself, not Meg. It did not quite have her. She blinked her eyes rapidly and against the rhythm until the redness before them cleared and she could see. There was the brain. There was it, lying, pulsing and quivering on the dais, soft and exposed and nauseating. Charles Wallace was crouched beside it, his eyes still slowly twirling, his jaw still slack, as she had seen him before, with a tick in his forehead, reiterating the revolting rhythm of it. As she saw him, it was again as though she had been punched in the stomach, for she had to realize afresh that she was seeing Charles, and yet it was not Charles at all. Where was Charles Wallace, her own beloved Charles Wallace? What is it I have got that it hasn't got? You have nothing that it hasn't got. Charles Wallace said coldly. How nice to have you back, dear sister. We have been waiting for you. We knew that Mrs. Watson would send you. She is our friend, you know. For an appalling moment, Meg believed. And in that moment, she felt her brain being gathered up into it. No! She screamed at the top of her lungs. No, you lie! For a moment... She was free from its clutches again. As long as I can stay angry enough, it can't get me. Is that what I have that it doesn't have? Nonsense, Charles Wallace said. 
You have nothing that it doesn't have. You're lying, she replied, and she felt only anger toward this boy who was not Charles Wallace at all. No, it was not anger. It was loathing. It was hatred, sheer and unadulterated. And as she became lost in hatred, she also began to be lost in it. The red miasma swam before her eyes. Her stomach churned in its rhythm. Her body trembled with the strength of her hatred and the strength of it. With the last vestige of consciousness, she jerked her mind and body. Hate was nothing that it didn't have. It knew all about hate. You are lying about that, and you were lying about Mrs. Watsit, she screamed. Mrs. Watsit hates you, Charles Wallace said. And that was where it made its fatal mistake. For as Meg said automatically, Mrs. Watsit loves me. That's what she told me, that she loves me. Suddenly, she knew. She knew. Love. That was what she had that it did not have. She had Mrs. Watsit's love, and her father's, and her mother's, and the real Charles Wallace's love, and the twins, and Aunt Beast's. And she had her love for them. But how could she use it? What was she meant to do? If she could give love to it, perhaps it would shrivel up and die, for she was sure that it could not withstand love. But she, in all her weakness and foolishness and baseness and nothingness, was incapable of loving it. Perhaps it was not too much to ask of her, but she could not do it. But she could love Charles Wallace. She could stand there, and she could love Charles Wallace. Her own Charles Wallace, the real Charles Wallace, the child for whom she had come back to Camazots, to it, the baby who was so much more than she was, and who was yet so utterly vulnerable. She could love Charles Wallace. Charles, Charles, I love you. My baby brother who always takes care of me. Come back to me, Charles Wallace. Come away from it. Come back. Come home. I love you, Charles. Oh, Charles Wallace, I love you. Tears were streaming down her cheeks but she was unaware of them. Now she was even able to look at him, at this animated thing that was not her own Charles Wallace at all. She was able to look and love. I love you, Charles Wallace. You are my darling and my dear and the light of my life and the treasure of my heart. I love you. I love you. I love you. Slowly, his mouth closed. Slowly, his eyes stopped their twirling. The tick in the forehead ceased its revolting twitch. Slowly, he advanced toward her. I love you, she cried. I love you, Charles. I love you. Then suddenly, he was running, pelting. He was in her arms. He was shrieking with sobs. Meg! 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 
I love you, Charles, she cried again, her sobs almost as loud as his, her tears mingling with his. I love you, I love you, I love you. A whirl of darkness, an icy cold blast, an angry, resentful howl that seemed to tear through her. Darkness again. Through the darkness to save her came a sense of Mrs. Watsit's presence, so that she knew it could not be it who now had her in its clutches. And then, the feel of earth beneath her, of something in her arms, and she was rolling over on the sweet-smelling autumnal earth, and Charles Wallace was crying out, Meg! Oh, Meg! Now she was hugging him close to her, and his little arms were clasped tightly about her neck. Meg, you saved me, you saved me, he said over and over. Meg, came a call, and there were her father and Calvin, hurrying through the darkness toward them. Still holding Charles, she struggled to stand up and look around. Father, Cal, where are we? Charles Wallace, holding her hand tightly, was looking around too, and suddenly he laughed, his own sweet, contagious laugh. In the twins' vegetable garden, and we landed in the broccoli. Meg began to laugh too, at the same time that she was trying to hug her father, to hug Calvin, and not to let go of Charles Wallace for one second. Meg, you did it, Calvin shouted. You saved Charles. I'm very proud of you, my daughter. Mr. Murray kissed her gravely, then turned toward the house. Now I must go in to Mother. Meg could tell that he was trying to control his anxiety and eagerness. Look, she pointed to the house, and there were the twins and Mrs. Murray walking toward them through the long, wet grass. First thing tomorrow, I must get some new glasses, Mr. Murray said, squinting in the moonlight and then starting to run toward his wife. Dennis's voice came crossly over the lawn. Hey, Meg, it's bedtime. Sandy suddenly yelled, Father! Mr. Murray was running across the lawn. Mrs. Murray running toward him, and they were in each other's arms. And then there was a tremendous happy jumble of arms and legs and hugging. The older Murrays and Meg and Charles Wallace and the twins and Calvin grinning by them until Meg reached out and pulled him in, and Mrs. Murray gave him a special hug all of his own. They were talking and laughing all at once when they were startled by a crash. And Fortinbras, who could bear being left out of the happiness not one second longer, catapulted his sleek black body right through the screened door to the kitchen. He dashed across the lawn to join in the joy and almost knocked them all over with the exuberance of his greeting. Meg knew all at once that Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch must be near because all through her she felt a flooding of joy and of love that was even greater and deeper than the joy and love 
which were already there. She stopped laughing and listened, and Charles listened too. Hush! Then there was a whirring, and Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which were standing in front of them, and the joy and love were so tangible that Meg felt that if she only knew where to reach, she could touch it with her bare hands. Mrs. Watsit said breathlessly, Oh, my darlings, I'm sorry we don't have time to say goodbye to you properly. You see, we have to. But they never learned what it was that Mrs. Watsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which had to do, for there was a gust of wind, and they were gone. Afterward, this is Charlotte Jones Voikless. Given that A Wrinkle in Time has been in print for more than 50 years, it is difficult to believe that the book was almost never published. In 1960, when the manuscript was making the rounds of publishers, editors did not know what to make of it, and it was roundly rejected by several. The exact number is unknown. The story didn't quite fit into any of the usual categories. Yet after it came to the attention of John Ferrer and Ferrer, Strauss, and Giroux, then called Ferrer, Strauss, and Cudahy, took a chance on publishing it in 1962, readers of all ages responded enthusiastically. This book that defied the categories has now endured for more than half a century, finding new readers in each generation. What is its secret, and what kind of person could produce such a book? My grandmother, Madeline Langle, was born in New York City in 1918. Her mother was an accomplished pianist, her father a journalist and novelist, an only child who was born late in her parents' marriage with its established routines. My grandmother's childhood was both rarefied and lonely. By her own account, she did not initially excel at school and preferred the solitary pleasures and consolations of reading and writing to spending time with her peers. Her father's lungs bore the marks of having been gassed in World War I, and when his health began to decline, the family moved to the French Alps, where the air was thought to be salutary. After a summer of freedom roaming the countryside alone, provisioned, she fondly recalled, with crusty bread, sweet butter, and bitter chocolate, she was, with no prior warning, deposited at a Swiss boarding school. It was a traumatic and formative experience for her, and she wrote about it in And Both Were Young. This novel was an early demonstration of what turned out to be her enormous gift for using storytelling to negotiate and transform pain and difficulty. Three years after sending my grandmother to boarding school, the family returned to the United States and settled in Jacksonville, Florida, where her mother had been born, and my grandmother went to a boarding school for girls in Charleston, South Carolina. This time, she felt at home with her gifts and, in consequence, blossomed. She graduated from high school and went to Smith College, Betty Friedan was a classmate, where she was active in student government and literary and drama circles. After getting her degree in English, she made her way back to the New York of her childhood and set herself up in a tiny apartment in Greenwich Village. She quickly found work as an understudy and performed bit parts on Broadway, all of which she saw as excellent training for an aspiring novelist and playwright. During these days, she wrote and published her first novel, The Small Rain, 1945, which was followed by her second, Ilsa, 1946. 
During a production of Anton Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard, she met a handsome fellow actor, Hugh Franklin, a young man from Oklahoma who was also finding his way in the world of the theater. Their fascination was mutual, and they were married in 1946. In 1947, their first child, my mother, was born, and a year later the new parents made the radical decision to abandon the demands of life in the theater forever in favor of a more conventional family life. They bought a house they called Crosswicks in rural Connecticut, ran the local general store, and raised their family. Looking back, I am not sure they were well-suited or prepared for this new life. In fact, the next ten years proved to be difficult and painful for my grandmother. Leaving the spark and energy of New York City and the stimulation of the theater for life in a small town, with its fairly rigid standards of behavior and clear norms of housewifery, was as hard an adjustment for her as being abandoned at boarding school. However, with characteristic passion and her innate sense that it was possible to make the best of things, Gran plunged into village life. She directed the church choir, participated in community theater, and helped with the store. She raised her growing family as a son and another daughter came along, and she continued to write. She often said that this period was nothing but rejections. That is not quite true. And Both Were Young came out in 1949, Camilla Dickinson in 1951, and A Winter's Love in 1957. Even so, she was restless and often unhappy, and struggled with guilt about the time she spent writing when there was, she felt, nothing much to show for it. No money, no recognition, no real validation to assuage her sense of professional failure, and no perfect pie crust or sewing skills either. She recalled that the minister at her church advised her to read the German theologians as an answer to her existential crisis, but alas, all they did was put her to sleep. Then, by happy chance, she began to read the work of physicists Albert Einstein, Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg. Their work revealed a new vision of the universe, a less conventional view not visible through our everyday experiences, and this resonated with her own sense of things. In their writing, she saw a reverence for the beauty of the laws of the universe and for the complex and ever-unfolding understanding of it, which gave her a sense of meaning and belonging. Their vision affirmed her own and became for her an opening into a transcendent reality and informed her unique perspective in a wrinkle in time. Much to my grandmother's relief, in 1959 my grandfather decided he would return to acting in New York City in the fall. During that summer, the family went on a 10-week cross-country camping trip, and it was on this trip that the idea for A Wrinkle in Time began to germinate. Driving through the landscape of the painted desert, so different from the New England and North Florida of her childhood, the names Mrs. Whatsit, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch popped into my grandmother's head, and she told her three children, 12, 10, and 7, that she would have to write a book about them. When the trip was over, my grandfather restarted his acting career playing the father in a production of The Diary of Anne Frank. And my grandmother stayed behind in Connecticut so her children could start school while their father got settled. The first draft of A Wrinkle in Time poured from my grandmother's fingers, written in the three months she was alone with her children. Her agent at the time, Theron Raines, loved the book and worked with her through two or three drafts. My grandfather also served as a firm and good editor. Grand read chapters and excerpts to her children and their enthusiasm for what happens next also encouraged her. But she did not sit down to write a children's book or a fantasy novel. She wrote to please herself. 
a few publishers rejected the book with comments like these. If it were a short fantasy, that would be different. I would advise the author to do a cutting job on it, by half. For me, there isn't quite enough story value. It's something between an adult and juvenile novel. She was advised to make the book more accessible so children could understand it, to change the plot, change the characters, change the book entirely. She was very tempted. The urge to do the publisher's bidding was made more acute when both her agent and her husband suggested that perhaps she ought to give the publishers what they were asking for. Perhaps they suggested she was being stubborn. She certainly was stubborn, but if she wrote to please herself and no other outside audience, she also, as she said, was a servant to the work, and as such had no authority to change the book. Now back in New York City, with her husband working long and strange theater hours and her children in school, she struggled once again to find her bearings. After a year of rejections by multiple publishers, she asked her agent to return the manuscript insisting that so much rejection was too painful and no one was going to understand what the book was trying to do. Then, at a party she gave for her mother during the Christmas holiday, a friend insisted she send the manuscript to John Ferrer. He had read and admired her first novel, so Gran was sufficiently encouraged to meet with him. He liked the manuscript, but just to be sure, he sent it to an outside reader for assessment. It came back quickly with this note. I think this is the worst book I have ever read. It reminds me of The Wizard of Oz. To John Ferrer's credit, that comment convinced him to publish. FSG did not have hopes of great sales, but the company risked a low return because it believed in the book and believed in Madeline Lingle as a writer. The editor of the book, Hal Versell, sent out the following letter soliciting quotes. to accept our faults, risk being vulnerable, and, in the course of things, overcome darkness. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Read for you by Hope Davis. With an Appreciation read by Ava DuVernay, a foreword read by the author, and an afterword read by Charlotte Jones Voikless. This program was directed by Kevin Thompson, producer Orly Moskowitz. Text to Mr. John Crosby. Madeline Langle, whose Meet the Austins is on the ALA's list of notable children's books of 1960, has written a book very different in kind, called A Wrinkle in Time. It rather defies classification in that it could be called science fiction, or a fable, or even a parable. It's distinctly odd, extremely well-written, and is going to make greater intellectual and emotional demands on 12- to 16-year-olds than most formula fiction written for this age group. I suppose it will be a hard book to sell, but I, for one, believe that the capabilities of young readers are greatly underestimated by most of the people currently evaluating books for children. Therefore, I am writing to a small group of people whose interest in this matter I know to be both serious and informed. I would like your permission to send you a set of galleys, and it is my hope that if you share my enthusiasm for this book, you will allow me to quote you. Sincerely yours, H.D. Versell, Vice President.
Their faith in Wrinkle was more than vindicated when it became an immediate critical and popular success, winning the Newbery Medal in 1963. People often say to me, she must have been an amazing grandmother. Of course she was. I remember being proud and eager to claim our relationship in grade school, letting classmates and teachers know my grandmother wrote that, and bracing for the wave of incredulity and admiration that would come. In high school, though, I rejected the interest and curiosity my grandmother's fame attracted, terrified that the scrutiny exposed my own inadequacies and unworthiness. Nonetheless, we were very close, in ways that grandparents and grandchildren often are. My sister, Lena Roy, and I are just over a year apart in age, and a sibling and cousins followed much later. We had the opportunity to develop a deep and special relationship with our grandmother. I lived with my grandmother during my late teens and early twenties, moving into her large pre-war apartment on the Upper West Side, immediately following my high school graduation in 1986. At the time, she and my grandfather were at Crosswicks for the summer, and he died that fall after a short battle with cancer. Over the next 15 years, she freely opened her apartment and life to friends, students, and grandchildren. She was in constant motion. Though her travel schedule was grueling and her domestic life chaotic, she loved being busy and in demand. She felt a great responsibility to her readers and students. Sometimes I would help her with her scheduling and fan mail. She received up to 200 letters a week. She read and responded to every letter for as long as she was able, deeply respectful of and responsive to what moved her readers to write to her. While the majority of the feedback my grandmother received over the years was positive, she also received expressions of fear and even hate. A Wrinkle in Time has been one of the most contested and most often banned books in libraries and schools in the United States. Gran was baffled by the charges of some Christian groups that it glorified witchcraft and New Age spirituality. On the other hand, she was equally flummoxed by criticism that it was too overtly Christian, for the fundamentalists, the book was certainly heretical. For literalists who are fearful of the essential metaphorical nature of language, it was anathema. She antagonized the same crowd that would later want to burn the Harry Potter books. One of the criticisms that stung her most was readers' disappointment in what eventually became of Meg, that is, her lack of professional vocation. My grandmother always maintained that her books knew more than she did, and that she wrote to discover and know her characters, not to force them into acting a certain way. Although she never wrote a series in today's terms, preferring the term companion books, she loved her characters and wanted to find out what happened to them. She wrote about the O'Keefe's, for yes, Meg and Calvin Mary, in several books beyond the time quintet. Meg, Calvin, and their seven children live in remote places where Calvin can have privacy for his politically sensitive research on cell regeneration. Meg, that brilliant, brave, and fierce girl, acts as his lab assistant and raises the children. This upset many, many readers. When pressed, my grandmother would maintain that in part the promise of feminism was that if a woman was free to focus her attentions on a career, she was also free to focus on her family. My grandmother left an unfinished first draft of a novel with a working title, The Eye Begins to See, after the poem In a Dark Time by Theodore Retke, in which Meg adjusts to her children's growing up and moving out. Polly, the eldest, is in medical school. Rosie, the youngest, is ten. Meg tries to make sense of her choices and to quell her anxiety about what she is going to do in the next phase of her life. 
when the daily responsibilities of children at home have ceased. My father fascinates my children with his discussions of heliopods, little pods of thrown-off sun energy that hit against the outer edges of outer space and bounce back. Fascinates me, too. Then there is definition between space and non-space, I ask. What is non-space, Meg? My father asks me. I answer with more questions. Are there spaces between universes? Can something unmeasurable be non-space? Work on it, my mother suggests. There's never been time, but the time when there is going to be time is approaching. Now that I am in my 40s, I have a lot more sympathy for Meg's choices and anxieties. She had a great deal to live up to. Although there is very little by way of cultural references to ground the action of a wrinkle in time in a specific historical moment, my grandmother wrote during a time when the threat of nuclear war was very real, and the description of the planet Kamisatz has often been read as a cautionary tale about Soviet communism or totalitarianism more broadly. But there is no simple allegory or correlation. Apart from the Cold War, the book can also be read as a response to another significant cultural and political vortex. I have always heard echoes of the civil rights movement in Meg's revelation that like and equal are not the same thing. Comparing drafts of the manuscript is both instructive and maddening. There is no complete edited manuscript, no dates on the pages or fragments, and it is difficult to reconstruct a chronology of revisions. It appears, however, that the manuscript was basically fixed once it started making the publishing rounds. The original contract for the book has the title Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Which, so the title changed late in the process, and Gran always gave her mother credit for coming up with A Wrinkle in Time. Other edits range from grammatical, lots of gerunds become verbs and vice versa, shifts from descriptive to expository narration and vocabulary and name changes. Killed becomes overcome. Mr. Jennings and Mrs. Newcomb become Mr. Jenkins and Mrs. Buncombe. Delightful becomes prodigious. There is a note on the title page that Tesseract might not be in the public domain and that she might substitute Skjortweg and Skeg. According to another note on a draft, she changed Mrs. Watsit's age from 625 billion, 379 million, 152,497 years, 8 months, and 3 days to 2,379,152,497 years, 8 months, and 3 days because the universe is only 5 or 6 billion years old, according to Isaac Asimov. In early drafts, Meg and her mother discussed Charles Wallace at greater length. Instead of calling Charles Wallace simply new, as she does in the final version, Mrs. Murray calls him a mutant and suggests that he is the next step in the evolution of human consciousness. The most significant revisions are to chapters 8 and 9, which take place on the planet Kamazots. In early drafts, more time is spent explaining the mechanics of how communication is possible. How and why do people on Kamazot speak and understand English? And suggesting the evolutionary history of the alien planet. When Calvin, Meg, and Mr. Mari make their desperate tesser from Kamazots to Ixchel, Mr. Mari tries to explain to Meg and Calvin the nature of the dark thing and it. His thesis has an eerie resonance today, positing that a planet can become dark because of totalitarianism. 
and specific dictators are named on both sides of the political spectrum. But a planet can also become dark because of too strong a desire for security, the greatest evil there is. Meg resists her father's analysis. What's wrong with wanting to be safe? Mr. Murray insists that lust for security forces false choices and a panicked search for safety and conformity. This reminded me that my grandmother would get very annoyed when anyone would talk about the power of love. Love, she insisted, is not power, which she considered always coercive. To love is to be vulnerable, and it is only in vulnerability and risk, not safety and security, that we overcome darkness. These changes and transformations to the various drafts, I think, made the book more subtle, more open to individual imagination and inference, and hence more enduring. They made room for the exploration of larger themes without the distraction of details and explanations that might have stifled the individual response and interpretation that has been so rich and long-standing. Many of the book's themes are also startlingly contemporary, speaking directly to a culture and world in upheaval and flux, full of changes that are terrifying because those changes might turn out to be oppressive rather than liberating. It is understandable that A Wrinkle in Time had trouble finding a publisher 50 years ago, given that it remains an anomaly to this day, still defying the categories. That very uniqueness, the way it is set apart from the ordinary, is also why it remains so well-read and well-loved. Some people are scared of it. The book is still vilified and challenged. At the same time, in today's vastly different landscape of both science fiction and young adult fiction, its blending of scientific and spiritual concepts and its unabashed optimism might seem rather tame or naive. What made it successful in 1962, however, are the same things that have kept it on reading lists ever since. It offers a well-crafted, suspenseful story with interesting, quirky, and yet relatable characters. I also think that Grant's exuberant and unambivalent embrace of the imagery and language of both science and spirituality to address questions of meaning is exhilarating and beguiling, and readers of all ages can successfully integrate them. Additionally, my grandmother gave us protagonists who are heroic, not in spite of their imperfections, but because of them. For the most part, Meg and Calvin are pretty ordinary, and yet they have the capacity and the strength to make difficult choices, help each other, and save the universe. After all, how many of us are going to discover that we have magical powers, or were actually born demigods? Nevertheless, we all might discover one day that we are called to accept our faults, risk being vulnerable, and, in the course of things, overcome darkness.